0: Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. Todd here. Really appreciate you joining us this week. Um, As we approach the holidays, it's late 2020, late December here. First, I just want to say thank you for being a part of this community and being a part of the modern carnivore community. Uh, 2020 has been such a challenging and difficult and painful year for so many people in so many ways. We really appreciate you being a part of this community, and we want to thank you for being here And wishing you all a good holiday season. And also just want to thank all the guests that have been on the podcast through the past year, too. We hope uh, you've enjoyed this stuff. So this week, we're going to be talking with Peter Stein from Pico Oysters on Long Island. And we're talking all things oysters. And it's a fascinating conversation. We're talking about the sustainability of oyster farming and having some conversation about eating them. Before we do, Mark's here with me right now. And we've got kind of a broader kind of conversation on the intro, just about all things waterborne, I guess. Right, Mark? Uh, how you doing? <laughs> That's right. What's
0: going on? Yeah, doing well, doing well. You know, it's uh, it's heading into the busy holiday season right now, and uh, and so a uh, lot a lot going on. But uh, looking forward to hearing this conversation uh, about the oysters and and uh, and everything else we got going on.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great conversation. And uh, I, I think folks will enjoy it and learn some things about it, too. And before we started recording here, you were telling me about doing some spearing up north. So I'd love to hear more about what's happening.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and I think I might, might have mentioned it uh, in the last... Uh... Outdoor Feast podcast too, but Hardwater Hunters is just a a, a content series we're doing this winter focused on dark house spearfishing in the north. And so if you're not familiar with this, you know, at this time of year, when the lakes freeze over, provides an opportunity to get out and do a unique type of quote unquote fishing, even though, you know, as the name implies, I'd, I'd consider it more hunting than fishing. And so you, you cut a, a square hole in the ice, about two foot by three foot on average, and, and you wait for fish or you try to bring fish in with decoys and then, and then spear them. And it's pretty exciting. I mean, it's, I think, very similar to bow hunting, maybe from a, a tree stand. Uh, I think it's probably the closest sort of uh, comparison if you haven't seen it before. Uh, and so I was just, I just got back from a trip up, uh, in the superior national forest. And so we went back in John Kachorik, who's been writing a lot of these stories as part of the hard water hunter series on the, on the website, uh, came up, uh, he brought his buddy, Devin, who had never been spearing before. And then we went out with uh, a new friend, Don, Don Murray, who's, uh, who knows that area really well. And this was a lake that he uh, had never speared before and wanted to to investigate. So we hiked back through the through the forest with sleds behind us and uh, cut some holes in the ice and and uh, and waited for Northern Pike to come through. So it was it was a fun trip. And then next we're gonna head to uh, more north central Minnesota, go after some whitefish and some pike uh, as well as down here in the in the southern areas of the state. So yeah, check out. People should check it out if they're if they're curious about it.
1: Yeah, I can't wait for you to release that footage there and to see some of that stuff. That sounds fascinating. You know, I spent most of the winter weekends of my teenage years in an ice fishing shack, but never in a, like a in a dark house for spearing. Well, so, what's
0: pretty cool. What's pretty cool about te- the, where uh, technology and gear is at nowadays too, is is we can do this this trip like we just did up up north, where we've got these collapsible hub uh, ice fishing shacks that we can throw in a sled, and then a hand auger, and a handsaw, and we're able to get back in pretty light and set up these temporary shelters that are, that are really effective. Uh, you know, in the past, it's usually been more of your classic uh, plywood permanent shacks that sit out on the ice. So, it's, uh, it's pretty fun to be able to, to try, try it in these new ways, uh, sort of a light, light manner, and get into the backcountry.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much more mobility with that. You you just have some more flexibility with being able to cover different water. You know, growing up, we had one of those plywood shacks and you put it out and it had to come off the ice by March 15th. Um, So this, this conversation about oysters that we're having with Peter Stein from Pico Oysters out on Long Island, he's on the North Fork, which is about two hours east of New York City. It's on Long Island on the North Fork of Peconic Bay. And he is an oyster farmer. He runs an oyster farming business called Pico Oysters, and we just talk a little bit about all of the cool stuff about oysters, the sustainability around oyster farming, the ecological services like water filtration that they provide, and then some really cool things about like recipes and how he likes to eat them and some partnerships with people like Tom Colicchio, who's a famous chef in New York City, uh, it's a pretty cool conversation. I appreciate Peter being on the podcast to talk a little bit about it. You know, the cool thing is, is uh, in New York we have uh, an incredible oyster legacy. For people outside of New York, they might not know, but like the area around New York City and Long Island, hundreds and hundreds of years going back to indigenous days, with indigenous communities like the Lenape, for instance, New York Harbor had at one point half of the The oysters in the entire world places like pearl street downtown were named because they were literally built next to like oyster middens and mounds um, that the lenape built um, and that they actually some of the oyster shells were used for paving the early roads it was that significant so really cool stuff like that and long tradition and so that's kind of fun and then just as we get around the holidays here, you know, oysters are typically celebrated in places all over the world, really. But like in New York and in France, they're really like a holiday kind of festivity around Christmas and New Year's.
0: Yeah, I I, I was on the website this morning. I think I'm going to have to order some up for, for New Year's. I, I love oysters.
1: Yeah, me too. So we were talking here before we started recording. So I I ordered some up here uh, last night and they're going to ship today and we're going to have them for the holidays. And what I'm excited about is I I love oysters on the half shell like raw. Uh, Peter was telling me in this conversation is you can also very easily grill them on like a charcoal grill or a gas grill. And in that case, you don't even need to shuck them. You just put them on the grill and within a few minutes, the top shell will separate and you can pull it apart, separate the muscle. And, you know, leave the the oyster and the brine in the bottom shell and have really great grilled oysters, put a little oil, pepper on it, stuff like that. Keep it really simple. And it's amazing. So that's what I'm looking forward to uh, for dinner. You know, we're going to do that sometime between Christmas and New Year's and uh, should be a fun way to celebrate and to support a regional business like Pico.
0: So are you going to do some half shell
1: raw too or are you going to grill them all? I I think I'm going to try some some raw too. Yeah, I've got a shucking knife and shucking glove, and I'm going to try it and just uh, see how it goes. So it's fun to experiment, right? So maybe a few that are raw, have some grilled. If there's any left over, I'm thinking even making like an oyster chowder, which is like a milk-based chowder with some vegetables and oysters and paprika and stuff like that. So we'll see. But there's all sorts of fun things you can do. You know, they're not just for restaurants. You can do them at home. And uh, it's a great way and fun way to uh, celebrate the holidays. Yeah, absolutely. Tasty stuff. Yeah, cool. I'll keep everybody posted. So before we get into this, we're almost there. You recently developed a partnership with, is it Sitka Salmon Shares? Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so uh, Sika Salmon Shares' uh, is business is actually out of Wisconsin. And what they've done is they've created a direct-to-consumer business model for small boat fishermen uh, out of Alaska to get seafood directly delivered to your house. And uh, there's somebody I've, I've been following uh, for, for quite a while now just because I think it's pretty cool. And so, like, the other day I got a shipment of their fish here and uh every single package so we got uh, coho salmon uh, halibut cod and so sort of like a you know like a CSA uh, for fish that you know you don't necessarily know what you're going to get but it, it's going to be based on what's in season and what i like about it is i think it philosophically aligns well it's not going out and getting the fish yourself you know a lot of people aren't going to be able to go out and and get all the fish that they're going to eat or hunt all the meat that they're going to eat. And so uh, I think it's you know incumbent upon us all to think about where are we getting that or where are we sourcing that, that from? And these guys do it right, in my opinion. So I think they've got about 40 small boat fishermen uh, and that are owners of the company, and they're just out sustainably fishing for, uh, for what's in season. And so it's the opposite, a lot of the large commercial trawlers that are, you know, basically just scraping the bottom of the ocean and picking up everything and getting a lot of bycatch. These guys are going out and hooked line and other methods, catching these fish and getting them frozen quickly and getting them shipped to you. And, and then every package has on it, the boat, the specific boat. So like the boat that caught the coho that I made up the other night that I grilled up was the Bella Don and it's owned by Mark and Don this couple. And so kids and I, before we grilled them up, we pulled up the video and got to see them and, and, and learn about who they are. And, and, uh, and so I I think it's pretty cool. So yeah. So if people go to sitka salmon shares.com when they, they place an order for a share of it, um, if they enter the code modcarn 25 they're going to get 25 bucks off their order. Uh, so modcarn 25 and you get 25 bucks off. So So check it out.
1: That sounds awesome. So on so many different levels, good food, quality food, supporting small businesses like that, small boats. And I just love it on so many levels. So check that out, folks. And also... Check out Pico Oysters. You can go to their website, picooysters.com if you're looking for oysters. You can find them on Instagram. Uh, you can find them on you know, social media. So if you want to get some great food, you know, you can support businesses like Sitka Salmon Shares. You can support businesses like Pico Oysters. You can feel good about it and enjoy great food too. So uh, I think without further ado, let's get into this podcast episode. I wanna wish everybody a happy holiday. Look forward to 2021, and uh, thanks for listening. Peter Stein, Pico Oysters, thanks for joining the Outdoor Feast podcast. How are you? I'm good, Todd. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation, Peter, so uh, thanks so much. I I think I saw you folks on Instagram a while back, and as soon as I did, um, I just knew that I wanted to have a conversation with you at some point, so thanks for making the time today uh, to do it. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself and pico you're You're out on the North Fork. How did you get started with oysters? Did you grow up out there and like tell us a little bit about the background with what you're all about?
2: yeah, absolutely. So just you know geographically, we're in Peconic Bay, which is the body of water in between the North Fork and the South Fork um of Long Island. so if we were on the north side of The North Fork, that would be Long Island Sound, which is the body of water in between Long Island and Connecticut. We're in between the North Fork and the South Fork. So I didn't grow up out here. I'm not like a multi generational oyster farmer, but I did grow up coming out to the North Fork and spending quite a bit of time out here throughout my childhood. My wife likes to joke that I learned how to fish before I learned how to walk. I love fishing. I get far too little time to do so today, but I got laid off in late 2015 from a job in a tech startup in the educational software space and throughout my life had a fascination and love for the water and decided to pursue that in some way, shape or form full time. Uh, It took a bit of a discovery process. But where I landed was to farm oysters. And I hope one day to farm additional species beyond just oysters. So we've been in business for four years. Uh, you know, certainly during this coronavirus time, uh, it's it's been a struggle. You know, restaurant volumes are down. We're a little bit short-staffed because we went through not only a six-week period or so where we produced zero revenue, absolutely zero revenue. But we also, to exacerbate that problem, uh, we went through, uh, we still have many, many thousands of dollars in our accounts receivable from the net 30 terms that we operate with with restaurants on. And those restaurants stopped paying their bills. So it was kind of like we had a 10 to 12 week period where we didn't produce any revenue. Um, so it's been a it's been a difficult time the last you know several months, but we're charging forward and try to remain optimistic so yeah i mean that's that's I guess a little bit of an introduction to the company and who I am,
1: yeah, I love it after having a tech career and and trying to work up a sustainable business in a place that you love on the north fork and and so is Pico oysters is that name reflective of the peconic like you're talking about, or did that come up yeah. with some
2: you know, people often say, like, uh, like I've even had people kind of nickname me Pico Pete. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of oysters out there in the market, as I look at restaurant menus and stuff like that, most oysters are named after where they're, where they're grown. And I wanted to get away from that a little bit and start to brand around a name, right? So I started brainstorming different names of uh, different ties to me and different ties to the area. But I do think place is important, right? I mean, like, I am i chose to do this here, not not to do it in Maine. A, a buddy of mine was kind of playing with the word Peconic and said Pico. And it just kind of stuck. Like, it rolled off the tongue well. And then I started to mess around with, with the spelling of it a little bit. And it just kind of stuck.
1: I love it. And, and I'm glad you also touched on the impacts of COVID and the situation, not only with your business, but like with the accounts receivable on the restaurant end, you know, because that's important. And I was going to ask you that about how it's been. And I can only imagine um, how hard it is for the restaurant industry and the food industry in general coming through COVID. Uh, I live up in the Adirondacks of New York. Our summer season, our businesses rely on the summer seasons for restaurants and hospitality. and, And so... You know, whenever there's a a a glitch in that, it it's hard to catch up. You're talking about ten or twelve weeks, and those ten or twelve weeks are ridiculously hard to catch up on from a business standpoint. It's like you never do. Uh, Oh, absolutely. I mean,
2: so many of those seasonal businesses out there, uh, including mine to some extent, uh, a little bit of a lesser extent because I service restaurants year round. But so many of these seasonal businesses are, you know, a a three for twelve. Uh, mm-hmm. type of business, and you know, I use that phrase three for twelve is because, like, basically, they get three months a year to make twelve months of revenue. Yep. Uh, yep. And you know, so it's a really tough business to be in to begin with, and you know, that difficulty is only highlighted and exacerbated by uh, coronavirus. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, one of millions of stories out there about how you know small businesses are impacted by and dealing with coronavirus you know i mean it, it's been it's been a pretty acute pain for quite some time for us you know it's certainly part of our story and hopefully you know one day we'll get to look back on it and say hey that was that was kind of shitty and exhilarating at the same time
1: you know <clears throat> yeah for sure and i think that it's an appeal to folks if there's an appeal to folks at this point to support your local businesses, support your local restaurants and food, and and just going back to like locavore kind of movements. This is something that would catalyze that with COVID. So, you know, sustainable businesses right in your neck of the woods and in the community. Um, Absolutely. I
2: think the, you know, one of the things that I've seen with, with the last, you know, four to six months under my belt is the outpouring of support from the local community, even, you know, extending beyond that to, you know, the New York City metro area, as well as, by the way, you know, you mentioned the word locavore. You know, I think this is also really highlighting some of the things in our food system that are, were on shaky ground, but we never, you know, the earthquake never hit, right? And now the earthquake is finally hitting and it's highlighting for us um, some of the infirmities in in the food system that is certainly something that will be a lasting change, a lasting effect of, of what we're dealing with right now.
1: I I completely agree, Peter. I I think so too. Talk a little bit about oysters and oyster farming. And uh, you know, I I was reading a book recently by MFK Fisher, who was a a writer back in the early 1900s comparable to like a Julia child. And she wrote a book called consider the oyster, which um, she was a famous food writer her book about consider the oyster is like a collection of essays just about oysters and you know their life cycle and eating them and, and all that stuff and it really it's fascinating stuff. But for people that might not understand oysters, just walk us through oysters and what you love about them and then we can get into maybe some of the elements of oyster farming and sustainability and stuff like that if if you're okay with that.
2: Absolutely. So uh, you keep me on track. Uh, so great book, Consider the Oyster. I haven't read it cover to cover. I've dabbled in it here and there. Another recommendation, if you're so moved by our conversation today, is uh, The Big Oyster by Mark Kurlansky, who is a wonderful uh, author um, and has written several books about food and, and specific ingredients, right? So he wrote a book called Salt, he wrote a book called Cod, and he wrote a book called The Big Oyster. So Anyway, highly recommend the big oyster. Uh, so, oyster farming is a lot of work and <laughs> it's physical work. You know, I think one of the things that uh, is very cool about an oyster farm in and of itself is that it's underwater. So, you know, I think as people, we don't really kind of conceptualize like what's in the water all the time, right? Our our mental conceptualization of the world ends at the waterline. Um there are very few people out there like Jacques Cousteau who, you know, spent their lives underwater, right? And yet I have a farm out in the middle of the bay that has just as much equipment and as many pieces of machinery, tractors, so to speak, you know, barges, workboats as a land-based farm. But you can't see all of it because it's it's out in the middle of the bay. So anyway, I think that that's kind of one of the fun and and cool ideas around oyster farms, generally speaking. You know, oysters grow in this part of the world. They grow about six months out of the year. So it's approximately early to mid-May through early to mid-November. And during that time, uh, we spend a lot of time out on the water, tumbling the oysters, uh, cultivating the oysters. The tumbling process is basically this, this piece of machinery called a tumbler that the oysters go through. Um, it's a long horizontal cylinder that the oysters get passed through. And, and there are three main things that happen as they pass through the, the tumbler. Number one is they're getting sorted by size because the tumbler, the tumbler is separated into different sections and have different mesh sizes on those different sections. So the oysters are getting separated by size. They are getting cleaned off. So they're getting uh, shed of debris, um, any sort of little predators or things that might be in the way of oysters growing uh, in a very healthy way. And then the third thing that is a little bit counterintuitive is is we're actually chipping the shell of the oyster. Um, so that growth edge of the shell uh, gets chipped as the oyster goes through the tumbler. And what that does is it actually encourages it or promotes growth and to some degree, some size and shape uniformity uh, with the oysters. So that way, as we sell oysters to high-end restaurants, and those end up on the plates of diners, you don't have a four-inch oyster and a two-and-three-quarter-inch oyster, uh, which doesn't look nice when you're you know, out to a meal that costs $200 a person. Anyway, so we do that whole tumbling thing during the... Uh, Growing season, which as I mentioned, is basically kind of May through November, more or less. Uh, and then the rest of the year, we can still harvest oysters, but we cannot tumble them because during those winter months, oysters shut down their metabolism and they don't feed. So if we sent them through the tumbler and we kind of damaged that shell, they wouldn't be able to go back into the water to heal themselves, which is what they do when growing
1: uh, May through November. That's fascinating. So I didn't know that. So it does make sense. How long from the time, like from a, a biological standpoint of the oysters that you're farming, Peter, like when you're talking about like a four inch oyster, you're tumbling through, they're growing and how can you tell how old they are? Do they have growth rings on their shells? Trees? Is that a ridiculous question?
2: Yes. They do have kind of like growth rings. Actually, literally, I'm, I'm sitting here with an oyster, a baby oyster shell in my hand. And it measures probably about three quarters of an inch. And there are growth rings on it, but those growth rings don't indicate like years. Um, it just kind of is stages of growth. But you know, to that question, an oyster on a plate in a raw bar or in a restaurant is usually somewhere in the neighborhood of two years old. Some of the faster growing ones get to that size in a little bit less time. Some of the slower growing ones take a little bit longer, but generally speaking, a three-inch oyster is usually somewhere in the neighborhood of two years old. Uh, Obviously, that can be impacted by lots of things, both in terms of, as just mentioned, the growth rate of the oyster itself, but then also the geography, you know, the availability of food in the water, the temperature of the water, et cetera, et cetera. And oysters, by the way, go through that tumbling process. About once a month, once every four to six weeks, we're putting oysters through the tumbler during that growing season. So it's quite a bit of work, um, especially when you consider that we have today about two million oysters out in the water. You know, if you divide that on a on a monthly basis, so like every thirty days, an oyster is going through the water. What what is that? We're doing like thirty thousand oysters a day plus.
1: It's an incredible amount of work. Yeah, you're out yeah. there. Wow. And what's that process like? I mean, are you raking them into a, to the tumbler or, I mean, it sounds like it's a lot of manual work. You're out there on the, on the water in the farm. How does that work?
2: So it's, it's a hybrid kind of system that we have. You know, we're constantly trying to add equipment as budget and time allows. We're constantly trying to add equipment in order to get the oysters, you know, to eliminate some of the more mundane or robotic tasks that we have to do. But you know, the oysters are in cages. Uh, so we have these like wire mesh trays that kind of like it's the oyster farming version of Lincoln logs. These trays kind of stack together and then we bridle them secure. We secure them with bridles so that way we can deploy them into the bay and and then um, come back a few weeks later and grab that same cage. And be able to put those oysters through the tumbler, uh, or if they're at the appropriate size, harvest from that cage of oysters.
1: Okay, gotcha. So thanks for the clarification there. So still, I mean, 30,000 oysters a day is what you're saying. So that's, a, that's an incredible amount of work. Uh, one of your, I saw on in your Instagram, uh, one of your like taglines is like turning water into brine. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that and explain what that means? Yeah. Um, well,
2: obviously, you know, the biblical phrase of turning water into wine, right? So we thought we'd get a little cheeky and clever with, uh, you know, a tagline for, for Pico oysters where, you know, the, the oyster, when you shuck it, you're ideally not going to lose any of the, the brine that is in the oyster. So the brine, the liquor, the the water, essentially, that's in the shell of the oyster is part of the flavor profile of the oyster. So you don't want to lose any of that and people most often refer to that as brine. you know the the brine is 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 that liquor is that um, is that liquid inside the oyster once you shuck it? And brine also kind of often refers to a, a bit of like a salty flavor. so, Anyway, yeah, we, we thought we'd get kind of cheeky and cute with our tagline. And, you know, I like it. And uh, obviously, the biblical reference is, is helpful for, for people to grasp onto it.
1: I like it too. That's cool. Can you explain to the listeners one of the things that I think are fascinating about oysters and oyster farming? It's kind of like twofold it's the sustainability part of it, in the sense that. Where with some seafood farming, when you're dealing with fish, there's different considerations. But like with oysters, there's a really big sustainability part of it. And then there's other things that oysters are providing really cool ecosystem services to nutrient cycling and so forth. You want to talk a little bit about that?
2: You know, I think oysters are probably one of the most sustainable foods you could choose to eat. There is, you know, as opposed to uh, cattle farming or shrimp boating, you know, getting out there and, and harvesting wild caught shrimp, the environmental sustainability and in fact, the environmental benefit. So oysters have a net benefit for the environment. If you stack up like uh, on a let, let's deal with it on a caloric level. So if you said that you have 100 calories that you're going to consume worth of oysters, what is the carbon footprint of those, those 100 calories? And stack that up against lettuce, or stack that up against cattle. You know, I I don't know the exact carbon footprint of those different foods on a hundred calorie basis, but I would have to imagine that oysters are far and away going to beat almost any food out there. It's certainly a very sustainable food to be eating, and. In that regard, you know, can't do anything more than encourage people to be eating them. It's a it's a really sustainable food. They're providing a net benefit for the environment, as you mentioned, nutrient cycling, sequestration of nitrogen into the shells of the oysters. So they're they're really doing amazing things for the waters. Um, and then you also mentioned in your in your question, the idea that you know they're they're creating an environment as well. So. And that's indeed true. is kind of like one of these byproducts of having all of this equipment in the water is that we are creating an artificial reef system in which we are creating sanctuary for all sorts of juvenile fish. So there's enormous life that comes around oyster farms as well. Uh, in addition to the oysters themselves, the the equipment that we use to farm them is also going to be providing sanctuary and harboring a a good living environment for lots of other little species of of fish.
1: That's interesting because I hadn't thought about that, but you're creating habitat, right? I mean, you're creating habitat and structure that benefits the whole ecosystem and not just the oysters themselves. So it's the marine ecology around that. Um, So that's really interesting. You know, you've got two million oysters in the water and it's taking two years to mature. And you talked a little bit about, you know, predation, potential predation. You talked about having a lot of capital as, as like a real farm, but underwater. What are some of like the natural risks? Are there predation risks with your oyster farming? I mean, are there seasonal swings that you really have to worry about trying to like keep this farm sustainable, keep it productive? Are there any risks that you have to continuously? think about.
2: Absolutely. I mean, the, the risks are, are too numerous to really mention, and they have to do with tides, they have to do with algal blooms, they have to do with predators that are just out in the bay. I mean, you know, whether that be starfish or uh, these little things that we call oyster drills, there are so many risks that we take. And, and this is, I mean, that is a true statement of, of farming in general, right? I mean, like everything from like viticulture to to traditional agriculture, corn, tomatoes, potatoes, lettuce. There are enormous risks that farmers take producing food. So you know it's it's an environment that is extremely challenging to be doing work in. There are, I think, at the end of the day, a lot of risks that we that we are taking, uh, and we do our best to mitigate against them, whether that be through being very careful with with our gear and maintaining our gear so that you know, I mean you also have to remember we're we're out on a boat right uh, you know boats are boats are holes in the water in which to throw money into the best day of of boat ownership is the day you buy it and the day you and the day you sell it uh, i mean these these are <laughs> true things right these are true adages that uh, we deal with every day because we're on boats every day so we are constantly having to deal with the trials and tribulations of not only farming a product, but also just dealing with boats.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I think it gives people a better appreciation and it's all the more reason to support businesses like yourself, local businesses that are taking those risks to provide quality, sustainable food to restaurants and to the consumer market. So before we started recording, we had a short conversation that I want to talk about a little bit. And you had offered that to many people, oysters could be considered vegan. And I, I love that kind of juxtaposition and that potential conversation around that. So talk a little bit about that. How, how do oysters, how do they kind of fit into the vegan side of things? And here we're talking about wild food and sustainability and everything like that. So what's cool is that they fit so many different kinds of categories. Talk about the vegan perspective of that.
2: Yeah, so there is a case to be made for oysters to be considered vegan. Number one, becoming vegan is is not as much a health. Well, it has to do with health, but it, but there's also a an environmental and and somewhat of a political component to choosing to eat vegan. I think, and you know, whereas other like my my nephew had um, some autoimmune issues where. he doctors said they suggested that he he go gluten-free and in fact as, as soon as he chose to go gluten-free a lot of his health issues cleared up you know these were not life-threatening issues but uh, they were nuisances right and he went gluten-free and those health issues cleared up going vegan is not as much of a of a health issue as what I just described right That's- choosing to be mm-hmm. vegan has to do with your, your choices around what you eat and the impacts of what you eat on your, your world. Um, and I think the, you know, we discussed the environmental impact or the, the, the positive impact of, of oysters on the environment. And then we also can talk about the animal itself, right? The, the oyster itself is, number one, it's sedentary, right? So an oyster doesn't move uh, so much like a plant, right? Plants don't move. Um, mm-hmm. Except in a, in a breeze, so that's that's number one. Number two, another reason why they can be considered vegan is that they don't have a central nervous system. So, in that regard, oysters don't feel pain the way the same way that other animals might feel pain. In that way, you know, oysters are more similar to a head of lettuce than they are to cobia. Um, which is a type of fish. I don't know why that was the first that popped into my head, but striped bass, um, which is a more widely known species. Those are pretty much the, the reasons why I've even heard some vegans consider oysters to be vegan is that they don't move. They have no central nervous system and they provide an enormous benefit to the environment.
1: Yeah. I'm cool with that. Like that, that makes sense. That's interesting. And, you know, by the way, you know, while I'm not vegan, I choose to eat meat and try to do so in a responsible manner. I do admire people that have a mindfulness about their food and the impact that it has, both on their health and, you know, on sustainability and political nature of it and everything like that. So, you know, while I I come to different conclusions from somebody that might be a hardcore vegan, like in the end, I encourage that mindfulness of responsibility and ultimately it's, our individual choices, right? We all have to kind of come to grips with it and just make a decision. And so if that's what somebody leads to a decision on and that fits their personal ethic, I think it's um, quite admirable.
2: Right. You know, we all make our own individual choices. Uh, number one, nobody's perfect. Number two, you know, we, we decide to do certain things because that's what suits our lives. And that that's a highly individual thing. If you choose to eat vegan, Going back to your to your book, consider the oyster. Um, mm-hmm. You
1: know, yeah, it's a versatile food that uh, can appeal to uh, all sides of the spectrum. Is what you're saying, which makes it, I think, incredibly unique. Uh, on top of just the the great nutritional and culinary experience that you get with, yeah. it. I love it. You know, yeah. the,
2: the one other thing I'll add is kind of, I think it was like back in the '80s or '90s, there was um, a ad campaign that had something said it the tagline i think was um think globally act locally Mm -hmm. and and in some ways you know that kind of conjures the idea of like the world starts with you you know what you mentioned about why i bring that up is because what you were saying with regard to the mindfulness that we incorporate into our daily decisions a lot of those have to do with food um is that you know you can have a real impact as an individual Based on the choices that you make in terms of what you are buying in the grocery store or getting mailed to your house uh, to be putting into your into your daily diet, um, and I think oysters is a pretty responsible and and uh, great choice to be making.
1: I love that, Peter. Thank you. So, Pico oysters—you've been featured in like New York Times cooking and food and wine, and you've tagged. I've seen like um, you know just some of the different chefs in New York. Did you do a, a Zoom? Friday evening oyster dinner with chef Tom Colicchio or yes. talk about yeah, Yeah. That sounds pretty cool. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: My approach to getting my oysters to the market has been to go directly to restaurants, right? I think chefs, individuals, and to the extent that people who are very mindful about the food that they eat, kind of follow some of the rock star chefs out there. Um, chefs are very conscious of, of where their food comes from, the food that they're putting on plates for their diners in their restaurants. Chefs are very aware of, of where food comes from. And uh, so that's that's kind of been our approach to getting the oysters to market. It's been quite a bit more expensive and and arduous uh, because it requires us to do our basically our own distribution. But because of that, it's, it's given me the great fortune to have some relationships and what I would even characterize as friendships with some awesome chefs out there. Tom Colicchio, uh lives out here on the North Fork. He's about probably a five to ten minute drive from my farm um, or where, where my farm is based on land, at least. And during coronavirus, we were chatting a little bit and I floated the idea uh, that we do like a virtual oyster class. Um, he's done some pasta cooking classes at his restaurant in, in New York City called Craft, And I was like, let's do some, something with oysters. So we did a Friday evening class with Tom Colicchio. Obviously, he's the celebrity rock star chef. I tried to bring as much oyster celebrity to the, to the mix as I could, um, but it was a lot of fun. We, we, it was meant to be more of like a private dining room type of event, uh, even though you were in your own home. But the idea behind that being that like, it wasn't going to be just some Zoom call with hundreds and hundreds of people on it. It was meant to be something a bit more private where you could actually get some virtual FaceTime with Tom Colicchio. Uh So it was about an hour and a half, 75 to 90 minutes long. Uh, we did a little bit of a structured kind of agenda to begin with where we were doing bit more of like an oyster preparation. So I, I taught people how to shuck oysters over zoom, we had a bunch of different camera angles set up so that we could try to show it from different angles. Uh, and then Tom showed a couple of ways to prepare oysters outside of doing them on the on the half shell and raw. Because I think that, you know, one of the things that I personally, and um, thankfully, sh- some chefs out there are trying to preach a little bit of a message is that there's more to do with oysters than just eat them on the half shell. And I think that that is hopefully going to result in encouraging individual consumers to bring oysters into their home kitchens more frequently, um, which is because 90% of oysters are consumed in restaurants. So we did this private kind of class. There were only 10 other screens, uh, we only sold 10 tickets to it, but it was a lot of fun. I think Tom had a great time. And, uh, we're hoping to do another one. Um, we're hoping to do some, I know that like, we've had some interest with regard to like corporate events. Um, I'd like to continue iterating on this model and, and even in, in a world where, where coronavirus has a vaccine for it. Like, I think, I think that we might actually continue doing these things outside of the health concerns that we're currently dealing with.
1: I I hope you do. I, I, noticed it and on social. And I thought it was a really cool event. I thought you put it together. I like the general framework of keeping it relatively small and intimate. And I think like who wouldn't have a great experience with that? Just being able to have a good hour and a half or so with Tom Calicchio and you and eating some good oysters. It looked amazing. So speaking of that, like, I like what you also said about making it more accessible. Like people eat oysters on the half shell, but there's a lot more versatility to eating oysters than just that. And you're trying to make it more accessible uh, for people to just like, hey, there's different ways of doing this and try to experiment it and get it in your homes. We try to have the same kind of conversations around wild food on this podcast and in the community, like, Hey, there's more ways to eat venison, for instance, than just putting it in a frying pan. So I like, I like the fact that you're building awareness around all the great different kinds of preparations. Um, And speaking of which, what are some of the handful of favorites when the last time you ate oysters, how did you eat them?
2: Yeah, I love grilling them. I think that, you know, you can whip together like a little sauce of some kind and grill some oysters and it's just phenomenal. And, and by the way, I mean, I'm no chef at home, right? Like I, I'm comfortable in a kitchen. I have some pretty decent knife skills, but you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a culinary whiz, but you know, you just, I think you eat fresh. You eat, I like the idea of like trying to use fewer ingredients, right? So like preparing things at home where, okay, so I want to eat some oysters on the grill. I have a little bit of olive oil. I have some garlic. I have some basil whip some olive oil, garlic, minced garlic, and and basil together, throw the oyster on the grill and throw a teaspoon of of that mixture in there. And like, honestly, I can't think of anything more delicious to be eating. And furthermore, you could even take like a piece of bread and stick it on the grill for a minute as well, and then pour the oyster out of the shell and, and eat it as like a crostini or crostata or whatever it's called. And like, this is something that's, pretty simple to do. You don't have to be a professional chef in order to do that. And another thing is, you know, you don't even have to shuck the oyster that way, right? Because like you put the oyster on the grill, and it'll start to open up after a couple of minutes. And then you can take that top shell off without even having to shuck the oyster to begin with. On the little soapbox that I that I have, I'm trying to encourage people to bring oysters into their homes more frequently. You know, I, I think that we are in the midst of a bit of an existential crisis where like our product that we grow 90% of it is consumed in restaurants. And like those restaurants are predominantly pretty high end restaurants. And it's just not being consumed in restaurants today because diners aren't going to them. So we need to get our product out there. We need to have people consuming it and buying it. And, you know, to the extent that I can encourage people to do that by opening their eyes or their minds to different ways to prepare this delicious food, uh, I'm going to try
1: to do that. And I think that there's an opportunity for people at home, you know, we're spending more time at home. We want to be cooking a little more. For people that are interested in quality, sustainable food, perfect segue If we're not going out to restaurants, it's an opportunity to just be at home. What you're talking about is like simple to prepare, grilling oysters, just a handful of ingredients. They come out delicious. So like I think that they're for certain people anyway that are interested in cooking and having connection to their food. It's a great segue and a great opportunity to explore dishes like oysters and and foods like oysters that are sustainable, Peter. So I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Anything else you want to talk about in terms of just pico oysters or oysters in general before we segue into how people can find you?
2: No, I think, you know, it's just, I, I encourage people to consider oysters um, in the sense that, you know, not to, not to go back to the title of that book too often, but it's a, a wonderful food. There's a certain accomplishment in terms of eating it, especially if you're shucking them yourself and uh and I think you know in today's world where I think many people are spending a bit more time in their home kitchens than they used to, I- I'd love to see people continue doing that and uh, and try to bring oysters into their into their houses. I, I think we've covered a-, a lot though in terms of just uh, you know what oysters are and and how they're farmed and and the extraordinary amount of work that goes into it.
1: yeah, we, we sure have, and I appreciate your time and people can find you on Instagram right? People can, find, you have a website, Pico Oysters. And the other thing I'm going to say that I, I love about this conversation is that wherever you are, whether you're on the North Fork or you're closer to the city, or you're up in the Catskills in New York, in the Northeast, there are these crazy cool opportunities to eat good food that, you know, that are sustainable oysters and there's opportunities to get out. And Long Island just has so, so much to offer in terms of Oysters, seafood, waterfowl, you name it. You don't have to be up in the Adirondacks to be able to get great food that's sustainable. You can, wherever you are around the city, you can do it. I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast, Peter, and uh, we'll put a link in. Uh, for your website and in the show notes. And we'll put a link into, uh, I think you said the book was The Big Oyster, right? Is that what yeah, you
2: said? Yeah, Mark book. Yeah. I mean, Todd, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll finish with the idea that like, you know, uh, so you mentioned that you can find us on Instagram. It's Pico Oysters, one word. Uh, PicoOysters.com is our website. We have a awesome little facility over here in New Suffolk, New York, which is this tiny, tiny little town out here on the North Fork. Uh, where people can come visit, they can come pick up oysters from us here. Uh, and you know for anybody who's listening who's outside of feasible driving distance of, of New Suffolk, we're now shipping oysters nationwide. So encourage people to uh, grab some oysters and um, you know have some patience with with us as a small business because we're trying to do a lot uh, with a very small team, but we're getting there.
1: Yeah, I look forward to ordering some. I'm going to order some up, and um, I'm looking forward to that. And I appreciate what you're doing, Peter, and thanks for being on the podcast. Keep up the great work. And, uh, folks, I encourage you to follow Pico Oysters on Instagram. Check out, o- order some oysters, and just be mindful about your food and enjoy it. Peter Stein with Pico Oysters, thanks for being on the podcast today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me, Todd.
0: Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.